Well, today is considered Sanctity of Life Sunday uh, throughout the country. A number of congregations, particularly that are evangelical or are Roman Catholic, have recognized this day for uh, now as part of two generations, uh, recognizing that we need to remind ourselves and we need to stand, be a people that stand for, uh, for life in every ex- expression of it. Uh, and so we're going to do something different today uh, than our regular uh, series. We will wrap up with Hebrews uh, next week, uh, and then we'll have communion the week following, and then we'll begin our, our next series in, in Jonah in the second week of February. Uh, but today I, I want to see uh, what God says to us as to how we are to live our lives, uh, particularly as it relates to the subject of life. And so we're going to look at two passages this morning, if you want to uh, make note of that. One should be easy to find. Uh, Both should be relatively easy to find. The first is going to be in Genesis chapter 1, and the second will be in Psalm 139. Uh, But before we begin, uh, let's go to the Lord asking for him to give us ears to hear and hearts to receive that would guide us. Heavenly Father, we do come and we, we thank you. We thank you for the privilege of coming into your presence uh, that uh, we so often take for granted uh, because it is so open and so free, secured for us by Christ Jesus, his death and his resurrection, uh, breaking the veil and opening the way that we may approach you. And yet we come knowing that you have promised to be present in our midst and you have promised to speak to us by your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak even now as we consider this matter, as we consider what your word says that would shape the way we are to think and the way that we are to live. And being shaped that we would live our lives by your word, that we would be a light to you, a light to the world from you, and that we would find our way is on the path of your way. May you be honored, and may the peoples around us be blessed. We pray in Christ. Amen. I was struck by the lead of an article that I I read uh, late last week, uh, published by uh, PBS NewsHour. Listen to how the article opens. For nearly 50 years, anti-abortion protesters have congregated in Washington every January to walk the steps of the Supreme Court in opposition of Roe v. Wade, the January 73 decision that affirmed the national constitutional right to an abortion. But the dynamics have changed dramatically last summer uh, when the hopes of anti-abortion activists were realized in the court's overturning of Roe leaving the legality of abortion up to each state. With our highest profile goal now a reality, organizers are reassessing how to move forward. The March for Life will take place this year, but activists will be marching to the U.S. Capitol on January 20th instead of to the Supreme Court building. The venue change is a symbol of the anti-abortion movement's shift in priorities from a focus on the nation's highest court to convincing legislators and the public to embrace their position. And I was struck by a couple of things as I read that. One is it is a reminder, a recognition of some things that many, many in this congregation have been praying for for quite a long time. 
And that would be that abortion would not be so easily available, that life would be valued. Now, the, the decision that happened in this court uh, doesn't raise the level of the value of life, but it, it does at least open the conversation uh, again. And for that, uh, is, I believe, is reason to be thankful. And this article is recognizing that. But the other thing that struck me was the consistent use of the, the phrase anti-abortion rather than pro-life for those who hold a position that they didn't like abortion. It's not a wrong label because, you know, if somebody is protesting and is laboring to have the uh, legality of abortion changed, well, then they are anti-abortion. Uh, but very few people that hold the position want to be known that way. We want to be known as pro-life. Now, some would be so quick to dismiss this because it's PBS. What would you expect for a PBS to be writing on this, right? You know, it's all politicized. We're in the middle of a culture war. There's the us and there's the them, whoever the us are and whoever the them are. And while that may be tempting to do, I think it's important that we don't do that. One is you have no conversation when you're not willing to listen to people who differ from you. And second is to do that dismisses the validity of the reason why some people might look at those who want to be considered pro-life and instead refer to us as anti-abortion. I had to wonder whether or not there was some validity there that uh, we unintentionally send as a, a people uh, that would give the wrong idea of what we value. Evangelicals and Roman Catholics, those who want to be considered part of the pro-life movement, have long been accused of only caring for life before born and not after born. And while statistically that's not true, there's certainly enough anecdotal evidence and, and experiential evidence to suggest that it's understandable why somebody might have that position. And so today, being Sanctity of Life Sunday, I, I want to touch on and I want us to consider what it is to really be pro-life, what it is that God would have us to stand for and how we are to stand. Now, some may be surprised in one sense because we usually don't delve into political issues in this church. It's not my nature to preach on political issues, and it's not Camper's nature to preach political issues, and most of you appreciate the fact that we don't preach on political issues. I think before I begin, I need to state this, is that fundamentally I believe that this issue of life is not a political issue, it is a moral issue. And because fundamentally it is a moral issue, then those who are followers of Jesus Christ must then seek the wisdom of God. And what does God say about this issue? It's a moral issue that has become politicized, and the question is whether anybody on either side is doing what God said. And we, regardless of where we find ourselves today, need to take what God says and ask ourselves whether or not we have reason to repent and then realign ourselves in conformity with what God says. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, if we claim that he is not only our Savior but our Lord, then we must walk not only toward the direction he wants us, but in the way that he wants us. And so we will be looking at two passages this morning. First, I would call it the, the preliminary text. We'll be looking at, at Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 25 through 28. And these are the words that Moses wrote at the inspiration of God. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and, the, and the, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These are the words that God has given to us. And there's something in this text that is absolutely fundamental. It's the foundation of our understanding of why we should value life. God created humanity, male and female, after his own image. Every person is a bearer of the image of God, unique among all of his creation. Nothing else in any part of creation, not even the angels that were created by God, are designated as being the image bearers of God. Nothing is equal to humanity. Now, the reality of it is that our sin, our sin, our fault, our flaws, our rebellion against God has seriously defaced the, the, the beauty and the glory of the image of God that he's created. And, and that is a very real problem, which is one of the reasons why we see ugliness. We see ugliness when we look in the world. And if we're honest, we should see ugliness when we look into the mirror, at least as we look into our own souls. But the reality is we also need to recognize the fact that it's been defaced, the, 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 uh, that would seem to devalue that which God has made, is really not the standard by which the value is made. God created humanity. God is the one who gave humanity value, and nothing else has the authority to change uh, the value that God placed on life. Fundamentally speaking, human beings, as image bearers of God, have more value than any of us can possibly fathom. And this is the platform. This is the ground that we need to stand upon. Now we turn our attention to Psalm 139. From Psalm 139, I want to draw two principles this morning. There are many texts that we could look to uh, that deal with this subject, but I, I, I'm going to just look here and, and draw. I'm going to focus our attention reading from verses 13 to 16. The context is David is praying. He's praising God, and, and he's just absolutely amazed when he considers how well God knows him and, and how much God loves him. And then putting those things together, how much God loves him despite the fact that he knows him so well. It's an attitude and a mindset that all of us ought to embrace. And David says this as part of his song. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet 
there were none. As we look at these words that David is expressing, I find it fascinating that David says, Lord, you formed me when I was in my mother's womb. That he does not say uh, that when my father and mother came together, biology made me what I am and you know, DNA and all that other stuff that was way before his time. When we look at what David says and the attribution of being formed by God and being known by God, even before he was given birth, we recognize that according to God's word, his life has value even before birth. David twice here makes mention of God's role in his formation. And it's not that David doesn't know where babies came from. He had more than his share. Well, I guess that's my way of gauging things. God said, this is how many you're going to have. And, uh, and under a variety of circumstances, some better and some not so great. But he was certainly not somebody who was ignorant of this. And even still, well, I think that the words assume the understanding of the biological aspect of where babies come from. He's saying even in that, that biological aspect, that God created all things, that it is God who was putting everything together. That every individual, even prior to being born, God is at work and knitting them, making them who they will be. He's forming them. And so, really simplistically, but I don't know how else to say it, is we value life even before birth because God does. But as I say that, I I, want to stop for a moment and make two applications. First, I want to speak to anyone who is here who has had an abortion or been party to an abortion. A study I read recently said that 40% of American women have had abortions. It's just mind-boggling. It just doesn't seem like that's possible. But one of the things that tells me whether that's an accurate statement or not is that the number is far more pervasive, far far larger than than I would than I would tend to to imagine. And if the number is that large, it would be absolutely foolish for me to assume that in a gathering of this many people, that there is not one there's not one person in here who has had an abortion. And my guess is if you are here, the likely, and and you are somebody who's had an abortion, and and you're in this church, it's probably a secret that only you and very few know, and that you probably don't feel free to share that. Because I'm not sure that the evangelical culture is sensitive enough to recognize or be compassionate about the pain that you must at times endure. I don't know what you feel, but I do know this. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so whether you 
are racked with guilt or whether you're able to, to deal with it or not, you need to cling to those words, to that promise of God because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. This is not something that defines you. This is not something that stains you. This is not something that makes you a second-class citizen in God's kingdom, and therefore you should not be a second-class citizen in God's church. And I, for one, am sorry for my silence in speaking to this issue that would enable you to be more comfortable. And I'm sorry for the evangelical church culture that proclaims freedom and then brings shame to people who are guilty of one sin as if our own sins are not equally as offensive before God. And what I want for you is to be free. Not just forget about it, but free because of what Jesus has done and to stand with the weight being lifted off uh, of your shoulders and stand in awe at the, the love of God who gave his son for sinners like you and me. But I also want to speak to the rest of us, those who have not been party uh, to an abortion at any time in our lives. As I mentioned a moment ago, that there are those who would claim that the evangelical church and anybody who's pro-life cares more about life before birth than Afterwards, the headline, or at least the, the lead story of the, from the PBS is, is a clear indication of that. And it's not an isolated situation. And again, it's easy to chalk it up into a culture war, uh, but there's, war takes two parties. And I think that we need to hear what God is saying, and we need to see this issue of life, but we need to see it not just in terms of what God says he values, but we need to see it through the lens of the gospel. And we also need to ask ourselves if whether we have contributed in any way to being labeled as just anti-abortion and not pro-life. We need to ask ourselves what is our attitude toward those who differ with us on this issue. What is our attitude, particularly to those that we know may have had an abortion or encouraged their wife or girlfriend or whoever one night stand to have an abortion? It's quite possible that the intensity that you you hold to this principle that we value life because God holds life and you hold it so dearly and so intensely and I'm not saying that wrongly, but it's so much intensely that you would view those who differ with you on any position regarding the sanctity of life as being an enemy. And I'm not here this morning to debate that. What I am here to say is whether that person is your enemy or not, then we need to remind ourselves of what Jesus says about how we are to relate to our enemies. And whether somebody is your enemy or not, we are called to love our neighbor, including our enemies. And that includes those who differ with us on this particular position. Remember, over and over and over again, the scripture tells us we're to walk faithfully. And we do have spiritual warfare in in this world because this world is not in line with the way God. Our own hearts, our own lives at times are warring against God. And, And so the world itself is at war against God. But we're told in the scripture that our warfare is not carnal, but it is spiritual. 
And our warfare is not against the neighbor or those who differ with us. Our warfare is against the issue, the spiritual issue, that leads people to have positions that are contrary to what God says. And then we need to look in the mirror and ask whether our lives reflect truly the value of life that God has. We value life before birth because God does, but how we treat one another is every bit as important as how much we value life before it's born. And I'm afraid we send way too many unintended messages. I've given this example before, but I'm going to give it again. I, I'm one who is, well, absolutely thankful that we do not use this space out in front of our church to plant crosses on days like this. I don't think they belong in any church lawn. I'm not saying that they don't belong anywhere, that there's no political statement in anything. There's free speech. There's, there's a message that needs to be claimed, and it, it sends a message. But on the church grounds, to make that statement, it does say, yes, we stand for life, but it also sends a message to those women who have had abortions, and it says, we hate people like you. We told you that you were going to be in pain. We told you don't do it. We told you it was wrong, and that if you did it, sooner or later you regret it. You can come, because we believe in grace, but... You wear that scarlet letter A that doesn't stand for adultery, it stands for abortion. And maybe that's not the universal message, but I, I just, if I try to think that's the message I would receive if I was one of those women. And so well intended, we do things to push our, I'm going to say right agenda, but we don't do it in the ways that I think are consistent with Christ. Clearly, this is not a universal blanket statement. And in one sense, it's an easy thing to say because we don't do some of those things, but we may do things that are far more subtle. We, as God's people, need to ask ourselves whether we are demonstrating the love of Christ for the broken, for the needy, and letting the love of Christ break through, or whether we're going to do it on our own effort and through our own wisdom. And then when we do that, we send unintentional messages. How we treat people is every bit as important as it is to have a passion for life. And I think that's the second thing that we, we see in, Psalm, in David's words here in Psalm 139. In, in verse 18 in particular, it speaks of uh, the days that are numbered. God knows the days that are numbered before there are any. And absolutely, this in one sense is an affirmation of the, of the worth of the child who is still being in the womb. I mean, that's the time. There were no days yet you know, lived apart from the child's mother. And they're being recognized. So there is an affirmation, once again, subtly, secondarily, uh, of, of life and the value of life uh, before birth. But primarily, this is talking about the whole span of life. Listen to how, uh, how Bible scholar uh, John Goldengay uh, writes of this verse. If Yahweh is involved in and knows about our origins, then Yahweh knows about and cares about the days that follow. And so we need to recognize that the Scripture teaches us we value life before birth because God does, but we are to be a people who value life after birth because God does. It is not a choice. Both are equally important. 
And it's incongruous at best to claim to be pro-life because we are anti-abortion and yet turn a blind eye to fail to have compassion upon those who are walking the earth. And many who are walking this earth have been rejected and discarded and abused. The poor, the outcasts, those with disabilities and special needs, the oppressed, the persecuted, the trafficked. We are created in God's image, but our sin and the ugliness of humanity has has, uh, really blighted our world. And I think it's essential that we don't just promise to pray. I'm not minimizing prayer. It's essential. And that we don't just write a check, though that's needed. But I think if this is truly a value, if we believe that there's value in life, both before birth and after birth, that we be a people that would reflect that by being engaged. I'm going to just start wrapping up. Two, two, two applications and then a final illustration. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, in other words, if you're claiming Jesus is your Savior and your Lord, then I, I would urge you to consider your positions related to all issues connected to sanctity of life through the lens of God's word. There are Christians on both sides of the argument, God doesn't have double-minded, and so therefore there is a way to think. And it's incongruous to claim to belong to Jesus and not care what he thinks about an issue. I don't know that we have a lot of the college students back yet, but, you know, it's, it's... as those who are emerging into the adulthood, the future generations, the pressure is hard. But you have to decide whether you're going to think God's thoughts after him or whether you're going to allow the world to shape the way that you think about things. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you must let God's words speak. Not the culture, and frankly, not the church. God's word. But even as I say that, I want to say this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ who considers himself or herself to be pro-life, I'd urge you to evaluate your attitude toward others who hold different positions. remind yourself that Jesus instructed us how to treat our enemies to recognize that winning a culture war and losing the hearts is not the aim of the kingdom of God. People may be born but if they think we hate them 
they will think that Jesus hates them. And we are to live our lives reflecting the whole counsel of God. Not pick a hobby horse, as right as it might be, and ride it until it dies. I'm going to wrap up, sort of change direction. When I wrote it, I really wasn't thinking about just how abrupt of a change this is, because, boy, that was a bummer a moment ago, wasn't it? Um, But I want to conclude with an illustration from a story that I'm pretty sure is familiar to probably almost everybody. It's from Horton Here's a Who. Horton is an elephant with big floppy ears. He hears something that none of the other animals are able to hear, and he realizes that the sounds are coming from a speck floating in the air. And he then realizes it's not just noise, but it's people crying out, crying out for help. Horton is hearing a who. And so Horton builds a friendship with the mayor of Whoville. He can't see him, but he can hear him. And Horton eventually puts the speck on a clover, and he carries the clover around in his trunk. And he talks with the who's. The other animals, who were not able to see and have not heard the who's, kind of mock Horton somewhat and tell him, stop talking to those little people because there are no little people that you are talking to. But Horton perseveres. He tries to convince them that the little people are real, but they don't believe him. And so one day, somebody steals his clover, and they put it out in the middle of a clover patch. Horton doesn't have his clover, then he won't be able to talk to these people, and he he won't be annoying anymore. But after a long search, Horton finds his who's. And in the face of the opposition and a great cost to himself, Horton continues to fight for and to protect the little people. And throughout the story, Horton keeps repeating this profound and this important refrain. Should I put this speck down? Horton thought with great alarm. For if I do, these small persons might come to great harm. I can't put them down. I won't, after all, for a person's a person, no matter how small. I think that the profound of this for this for us to think about today is that certainly it turns our attention to the smallness of a child that is developing within the mother's womb. God says that that's a person. But in the eyes of this world who treats individuals, regardless of who they are, as insignificant, as invisible, as unworthy of anything, we consider people who don't matter to be small, and yet, as Horton understands, and we who belong to Jesus Christ also need to remember, a person is a person, no matter how small. May God give us grace to understand the boldness to stand for those who the world considers small and insignificant. May God make us Hortons. Father, we pray with thanksgiving on this day. For each of us has been blessed with the gift of life. We pray that we would stand for life as it is emerging, life as it is existing, and even as life is ebbing away. 
May we value life because it is a gift from you. May we value life because the life of every individual person, whether we like them or not, is endowed with value because it's a reflection of you. So, Father, may we honor you by valuing life, not just as a political conviction or position, but with our energy, our hearts, our engagement. Father, use us, shape us and use us to be your vessels, to give dignity to life in this world. We pray this in Christ, who became like us, to deliver us from us. May he be honored. I pray in Christ. Amen.